From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. A New York Times bestselling author, Sam Keen has written four books on science. Books with titles like The Disappearing Spoon and The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons. So as you might guess, he's someone who appreciates a good story just as much as an interesting discovery. In addition to his books, Sam's work has appeared in the Best American Science and Nature Writing, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, and Psychology Today, among other places. Sam was on campus earlier this year to give a plenary address at the 25th Biennial Conference on Chemical Education, a national meeting sponsored by the Division of Chemical Education of the American Chemical Society. He and I talked about all kinds of science, from ill-fated efforts to control the weather and early research on DNA, to the bum rap that mercury gets and everyone's favorite precious metal, aluminum? So, Sam Keen, thank you for thank you for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. Um, your most recent book is Caesar's Last Breath, Decoding the Secrets of the Air Around Us, which was named the Guardian Science Book of the Year in 2017. But I think the moment I knew that I wanted to interview you wasn't when I saw that it won that award, but there was this quote on the homepage of your site that I'm going to okay. read here that right. immediately sucked me in. With every breath, you literally inhale the history of the world. Of the sextillions of molecules entering or leaving your lungs at this moment, some might well bear traces of Julius Caesar's final breath, Cleopatra's perfumes, German mustard gas, particles exhaled by dinosaurs or emitted by atomic bombs, even remnants of stardust from the universe's creation. Please explain. <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, I it this idea that these thing these events that are happening millennia ago and yet we're still connected to them by the air that we breathe. I think that we have of, a direct connection yeah, to them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so basically, what it is is you are breathing in air molecules all the time. Uh, right. We always think about oxygen. That's the most important one that we're breathing. It's one that kind of gives our body energy, helps run our bodies. But you're also inhaling a lot of other gases as well, including nitrogen especially is the big one. And nitrogen is a very hardy molecule. So once it gets in the air, it sticks around for a long time. Our bodies don't really use it. So those nitrogen molecules, you're constantly breathing in and breathing out. And it turns out that there are so many of those molecules that we're breathing in at any one time that once they get into the atmosphere, they obviously start spreading around the Mm -hmm. world. But there are so many of them that statistically, it's almost inevitable that you're breathing in a molecule that, say, Caesar breathed during his last breath. Mm -hmm. And all those other events, the same sort of thing happens. The air that was around those people during those events that they were breathing in and out gets spread around the world. But there are so many of those molecules that there are still some around us today. And we're Mm -hmm. constantly breathing them in and out. So... Mm -hmm. Even though their bodies are long gone, a lot of their clothing, things they were holding or using, all those things have rusted away or disappeared. But their breath, of all things, the most ephemeral thing you would think, is still around us. One of the histories that you recounted in that book, and then you published 
a piece adapted up from that in uh, The Atlantic was about a Nobel Prize winner named Irving Langmuir. Mm -hmm. And the title of that piece was The Chemist Who Thought He Could Harness Hurricanes. And he ultimately got himself blamed, at least temporarily, for a hurricane (laughs) that swung around and hit Savannah, Georgia in 1947. Who was Irving Langmuir, and where did he kind of go wrong with what he was trying to do? So Irving Langmuir was a very famous chemist. He was, in his day, about on the same level as Einstein. I mean, he was that famous in the world. Uh, 1920s, especially 1930s, were kind of his heyday. He was an industrial chemist, which was kind of odd. He was working at uh, GE at the time in upstate New York. And he was one of those people who was constantly coming up with brilliant, brilliant ideas. There are even journals today still named after him, just his last name and all the amazing work he did. Toward the end of his life, he got very interested in weather control, the idea that we can seed clouds or that we can somehow harness the weather. We can diffuse hurricanes, basically um, sap their energy, make them less destructive. And so he started to run experiments where basically they would go up in a plane, they would start to seed uh, clouds and hurricanes with bits of carbon dioxide, frozen carbon dioxide, or bits of um, silver iodide, Mm -hmm. other compounds. And he had all these theories that he was able to control hurricanes and things. And I talk a little bit about the book that it's probably uh, a little dubious. He was talking himself into believing a lot of these things. But during his day, his work was getting a lot of attention. And as you mentioned once, there was an incident where they sort of decided unilaterally that they were going to seed this hurricane. Looked like it was going out to the ocean. This, was the military was part of it? Was it? It was the navy. Was it, part navy of was it, part yeah. of this? Yeah. But they right. were kind of just doing it on their own, not right. really consulting with anyone else. Just deciding. I mean, with things like hurricanes, you need to consult with other countries. Like right. hur- hurricanes affect large areas, but right. the navy just decided they were going to do yeah. this with Irving Langmuir. And they seeded this hurricane, looked like it was safely going out to sea, and then it took sort of this impossible 135-degree turn and just barreled over Savannah, Georgia. And there were a lot of people very angry about this, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine. And Langner took a lot of heat for this until some, I guess it was some sort of enterprising uh, meteorologist down there, remembered that, you know, in 1908 or something, a similar hurricane had taken a similar turn. And that so it was possible it wasn't them that had done it. It Mm -hmm. might have been just a natural event. And eventually, that's kind of what happened to Langner's work. It's really fascinating work uh, to read about and discuss, but... A lot of people realized that everything he was saying that he was doing about controlling the weather, bringing up these um, massive rainstorms and things, might just have been natural events that he was taking credit for. So it's fascinating work, but kind of hard to tell yeah. what he was actually doing. Well, and I know, and I know in, in what you wrote, you pointed out that people were observing, as they went back to try and reproduce his work, that they're observing okay, you're saying you're seeding this rainstorm from this cloud, but you also seem to be picking clouds that look like they're already ripe right, to start yeah. raining, and right. there's no control group to compare this against and all those sorts of things. Yeah, so there are a lot of flaws with his experiments, yeah. even yeah. though he was a brilliant scientist. Would you like to order? Sure. Yeah. I would get the, by the way, uh, if you're as intrigued by this Irving Langmuir story as I was, make sure you check out Sam's article from The Atlantic, The Chemist Who Thought He Could Harness Hurricanes. We've shared it on our Twitter, at with a side of pod. Sounds great. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Oh, and can I get some cream when you have a chance yeah, to? Of course. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, so I, I mean, it, I love the image that you started that piece with of uh, he was uh, somewhere on the coast in New England, I think, and he had his assistant was up in the plane and he sees yep. the rain coming down. It's like, 
this is I won a Nobel Prize, but no, this is this is the moment. This I, is the most I figured important out thing how to harness the yeah. rain. Yeah, he'd already, as you said, he already won a Nobel Prize, but he thought that this was the most important thing he'd ever done. He starts running around in the control room. He goes to a reporter, starts screaming into the phone. Like he was really excited. He thought he was going to revolutionize basically all of human history after that point. Wow, it's a big come down to come down from that. A little, but he died believing. I mean, yeah, he, he yeah. for him it wasn't a come down. For the right. rest of us, it's been a disappointment. But he he died right. a believer. Your first book. The Disappearing Spoon, I think, based on what I've read about it, it aims to humanize something that I think a lot of us probably don't have the best memories of. Thank you very much. Um, the Periodic Table of the Elements. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you, setting aside maybe for a moment your feelings about any particular element, an element that you think in and of itself is interesting, but just the history of discovering the elements. Is there an element to you... What's one of the most interesting backstories about one of the elements that has come to be on the table that we know and understand better today, but of the person kind of bringing it to bringing it to the scientific community? Uh, well, to answer the the question, my favorite element is mercury. Like it's mercury. And I read a little bit of story, but I, I, yeah. I'd like you to explain that too. You can take these in either order that you want. Okay. But why is why is mercury your favorite element? It's a combination. I talk <laughs> about it in the introduction to my book, and that it's a gorgeous element, it's the most beautiful element. I really think it's a disappointment that a lot of younger people nowadays don't get to see mercury. A lot of them have never even seen the substance, and it's such an amazing gorgeous substance that I really think it's a disappointment. I mean, it's it's a poison, yes, but it's not like, you know, it's not like uh, something that's going to kill you instantly if you see it. So, with the proper controls, I think it's a, it's a nice element. So, it's a gorgeous looking element. Mm-hmm. I have some very nice memories of it from my childhood, breaking thermometers and things, so I have right. personal memories. Right. And it has a really long, fascinating history as well. We've mm-hmm. known about it for thousands of years. It pops up in alchemy. It pops up in colonization of the New World. It pops up in early scientific experiments. It pops up in Greek and Roman times. It's just mm-hmm. a really, really rich history. So that combination of all things is why I consider it my most favorite element. Mm-hmm. Um, as for your story about kind of – or your question about an element with kind of a hidden backstory, mm-hmm. probably the best example I can think of is the element aluminum. Uh, because it's an element we all know today. It's kind of a throwaway element in like pop cans and aluminum foil and stuff. Uh, But for a long time during the 1800s, believe it or not, aluminum was actually the most precious metal on Earth. It was worth way more than silver was and worth way more even than gold was. And the reason why is that, you know, aluminum is pretty common. It's the most common metal in the Earth's crust, but it's very hard to get a Uh, to separate aluminum from the other atoms it's bonded with. So Mm -hmm. it's in mineral form, usually bonded to oxygen. And it's very hard to get the aluminum atoms off of that. Mm -hmm. And so when chemists in the early 1800s started to get the first pure samples of aluminum, it was considered kind of a miraculous metal in that it was very light, but also very strong and attractive. And because it was so hard to make, it actually became something of a status symbol for kings and emperors to get their hands on samples of aluminum, which sounds just ridiculous. No, we cite our aluminum siding and all these other things. Yeah, yeah. I, so I mean, if like they said. if they came back today and were like digging through our trash cans and stuff, they'd think we were fools for throwing away millions of dollars like this. But they would make centerpieces out of aluminum for their banquets, and they had you know aluminum cutlery that only yeah. the most special guests at their banquets got to use. And there's actually a story about there was one time. Um, there are actually a couple of times that the, the lesser nobility were sort of reduced to eating with gold <laughs> knives and forks. It was very embarrassing for them uh, to be eating with the gold silverware when there was aluminum available. Right. So. It's kind of a fascinating commentary just on 
how economies work and how we place value on things yeah, exactly. and, and things like that. That it's just it's all what this society is assigning value to, and then exactly. it becomes the most important thing. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, like, what elements that we ignore today are going to be worth millions in the future, or what elements that we care about today aren't going to be worth anything in the future. Right. So that was kind of the premise of the book, was to go around to all of the elements on the periodic table, all 118 mm-hmm. of them, and to tell a story about them, a really human story, mm-hmm. and not necessarily you know just where they were discovered or who discovered them, but things about how aluminum was the most precious metal on Earth, and really humanize these elements right. and give them a character, make them fun. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've tackled the air around us, you've tackled elements, but you've also written books about... DNA, as well as the brain and the history of neuroscience. And I'm wondering, as a writer, how how do you approach taking a subject, again, that people are probably accustomed to thinking of as complicated or it's going to be over my head, there's not a way for me to understand it, and take that and say, I'm going to make this accessible to a broad audience. What What is your mindset when you're going in to research something like this and, and how you translate it to a, a broader One thing I always try to do is I try to make sure the stories are there ahead of time. So I'm not going to tackle a topic just because I find the science interesting. I always look to make sure there's a good story there, which Mm -hmm. means there are people involved. There are good characters. There are heroes and villains. There's a conflict of some sort. There's some drama. There's a satisfying resolution, hopefully. Or maybe it's a complicated resolution that teaches us something about ourselves. So I always want to make sure there's a story there, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And from that, I figure the science will kind of take care of itself. Mm -hmm. And I have found that once you give people a story, make them interested in the characters, make them interested to know what's going to happen, that they're willing to go with the science. They're Mm -hmm. willing to learn a little bit more about the science. And it's a much more pleasurable experience than if you kind of throw the science in there at the beginning right. and then just, you know, toss in a few anecdotes. Right. So if it's a real story, people would care about it. Is your, is your background in science and then you decided to take it and make it more kind of in a, a popular strain like this? Or did you approach it more initially as I'm a writer and these seem like really interesting, interesting stories to tell? It was a little of both. Mm-hmm. I studied physics in college, so okay. I had that uh, background in the technical subject. But I also had an English major in college sure. as well. So I kind of got going <laughs> on the physics track, realized I didn't want to do it for a living, mm-hmm. uh, be a scientist, become a scientist, then picked up the English major kind of on the side was working right. on both. And initially I thought it was just going to be a regular writer, you know, writing nonfiction or maybe, you know, fiction novels, whatever. But eventually I kind of missed the science and I wanted to be involved in it. So writing about science turned out to be a good way to kind of marry the, the two interests yeah. that I had. Why do you th- – obviously, I mean, you've, you've written these best-selling books about it and have invested your career in bringing – science to a larger readership and clearly you know it's it's a personal interest it's a passion for you why do you think that's important in a broader sense why why don't we want to just leave science to the scientists because science is a, a couple of reasons why. One, we're living in an increasingly more technical society, so I think it's good for people to understand what's going on around them. There are also a lot of controversies out there, and people are understandably scared about some things going on in biotech, neuroscience, artificial intelligence. And I think having a background in those things 
or at least having some exposure to the basic ideas and concepts, I think can help you make a more informed Mm -hmm. and wise decision about what uh, the real consequences, the real things we need to worry about are, and what things are probably overblown. I think in in all cases where there's controversy, there are things to worry about, but there Mm -hmm. are some things that are overblown as well. Mm -hmm. Another thing I think that science is just intrinsically rewarding um, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it is a very human activity. And we think about it as a very sort of logical enterprise, but it's also something that people dedicate their lives to, that they're very passionate about, that they care a lot about. And there are some really great overlooked stories there if you just look a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of intrinsically rewarding on its own. And we've all had an experience. Maybe it was, you know, way back when we were a little kid or something. We went to a museum or we looked at the stars or something. We were sort of touched by the wonder of the natural world. And that's what I try to do with the stories that I tell is to try to get back in touch with that and Mm -hmm. try to get people back to that state of wonder. I think that ties in really well with the project that you were working on recently. I mean, we're on a podcast, so I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up a podcast, but you were the writer of season one on the new podcast called American Innovations. Yep. Um, and I love the, when I was listening to the first episode yesterday, the first listener review I saw, which made me laugh. And I think it's a perfect description was finally a science show that isn't boring, which I thought was a great, I thought it was a great review. Um, and it sounds similar to your approach with, with your book. So what is American Innovations? That was a podcast I was working on for Wondery. Um, a lot of it was based on my book, The Violinist Thumb. So that season was very focused on DNA, uh, genetics, and kind of took a really broad look at it. Looked at the history of genetics, where the science came from, the roots of it. Looked at some darker times during its history, the eugenics movement, uh, other things like that. And also look to where it's going into the future about, you know, new medical techniques, about things. We have the technology, the basic technology nowadays to bring back woolly mammoths and to bring back uh, other extinct creatures. Is that a good idea? Is that something we should do? So looks at a really broad spectrum of basically 150 years of the science of genetics, the study of DNA, and looks at where it's going, where we've been, and the good and the bad. So kind of the whole package. One of the things just having listened to that first episode, it gives you this very human story of the mid-19th century of these two guys working, even though they're geographically fairly close to each other, working yeah. in isolation. And then they're just, how much they really did discover just kind of being discarded by the scientific community at, at the time because right. it wasn't connected. Um, can you talk a little bit about the two of them and really how the the beginnings of our modern day understanding of what DNA is really started in, well, I guess what we would consider maybe today kind of a primitive environment. Yeah. So the two people involved were Gregor Mendel. He's a very famous, uh, it was a monk who actually discovered genes, the idea of genes. And then there was Friedrich Miescher, who was a uh, scientist working in Germany, and he discovered DNA. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, the idea of genes and the idea of DNA are so intertwined that it's hard for us to kind of uh, talk about one without the other. They seem like almost the same thing. But for a long time, scientists didn't know that... Uh, genes were made of DNA. Mm -hmm. And so they were actually discovered as completely separate concepts, and they were studied in parallel for a long time without anyone ever kind of putting them together. It wasn't until just before Watson and Crick and Franklin Mm -hmm. in the 1950s that they actually realized that, oh, genes are made of DNA. Mm -hmm. 
And so, yeah, it was kind of this strange alternative history where the two things were going on kind of on independent tracks. And we were learning a lot about genes and how they work, also learning about DNA, but no one had kind of put them together for a very long time. And it's just sort of a fascinating history, um, something that we look back on nowadays and we're like, come on, guys, like it's so obvious. It's all right there. How did you not see this? Yeah. yeah, but then it makes you wonder, like, you know, what things that are right in front of us nowadays are we right. just not quite putting together that people 100 years from now are going to be like, oh, well, it's obvious that those two are connected. It's like, wh- what elements or what things are they going to value 100 years from now that we're recycling or yeah. saying this is... This is worthless. Yeah. So uh, I, with these stories, it's it's funny in some sense. I think it's okay to laugh a little bit about these things, but it's a humbling in the same time. Mm-hmm. I feel like kind of informally we've covered three of your four books, so it only makes sense that we um, talk about the fourth book, which was about the brain and the history of neuroscience. What were some challenges unique to doing that project, maybe versus some of your other ones? Well, the the big challenge uh, for that book was that I had no background in neuroscience, (laughs) never taken a class in neuroscience, knew very little about it going in. So that was immediately a, that that was the big obvious challenge with that one. Whereas the other books I had been writing about the topic or I knew a little bit about it from classes, things like that. But I will say with neuroscience that it was much more accessible than other topics. Um, you know, if you pick up like a high-level physics paper, it's just impenetrable. I mean, it's just a bunch of symbols there. You have no idea what's going on. Whereas a neuroscience paper, you can go to journal articles in neuroscience, and they're talking about things like language production, memory, emotion, things we deal with on a day-to-day basis. So the actual subject matter in a lot of cases is more accessible. And you can read these journal articles, and they're about everyday people too, Mm -hmm. people who just suffered injuries or strokes or something, very sad cases, but they're everyday people like you and I, Mm -hmm. like you and me. Um, And so they're they're more accessible in that way. Mm -hmm. And kind of the premise of that book was to look at these stories of everyday people who had suffered injuries to different parts of their brain, and their behaviors would shift in these very unusual but very specific ways. So a couple of examples. One case involved some people who got a little bit of damage in their temporal lobe, so near their temples Mm -hmm. on the side of their brain, and all knowledge of animals just sort of poof disappeared out of their head. So these people could tell different plants apart. That was no problem. They could tell human-made objects like silverware apart. But like dogs, raccoons, elephants, oh, wow. fish, all looked exactly the same to them. They could not tell them apart. Could they relearn the distinction between them? Was it just like a blank slate where they could relearn the distinctions between them? or is it? I'm just- not sure if they could relearn it. They could sometimes, with some people at least, they could maybe touch them and be like, oh, this is furry, therefore it must be this type of animal. Oh, okay. So touch sometimes sure. still worked, but the vision part of it was just completely gone yeah. for them. Or there are cases of other people who can't speak. They just can't get words out anymore. But because of where the damage is specifically, they can still sing song lyrics. No problem at all. Or some people, this is even stranger, but some people cannot hold a daily conversation. But if you provoke them, get them angry, rile them up, they can still swear at you. No problem at all. So these words just sort of bubble up out of the emotional centers of their brain, even though they can't have a day-to-day conversation. And so basically the premise of the book was to look at 
injuries to every single part of the brain, see how people's behavior shifts when you get injured in that part of the brain. And from that, you can infer and learn a lot about what that part of the brain does. And basically, that was the entire history of neuroscience up until about a quarter century ago when MRI machines and CAT scans and other things sort of allowed us to peek inside the brain. Before that, basically, you just had to wait for everyday people to suffer a calamity and figure out what that part of the brain did. I remember uh, a family friend, or I guess it was a friend of my dad's growing up, that Maybe not as extreme as those examples, but he, if I'm remembering this right, because I think I was about eight at the time, but was a practicing physician and got into a car accident mm-hmm. and just lost all knowledge of medicine and was just gone. And then he ended up, I don't remember what, I don't remember what career he ended up, he had to basically decide, okay, well, I'm not going to be a doctor anymore because every part of my brain that stored that information is completely gone. And uh-huh. it's like it never even, never even happened, never even went through years of training or, or right. any of those things. And and one of the really fascinating parts was there were stories of lots of injuries in the book, but also some really amazing stories of people recovering from injuries or figuring out really ingenious coping mechanisms to get around some of the deficits that arose in their life. So it was a fascinating – a lot of fascinating stories, but also sort of hopeful in a lot of cases as well, the resiliency that people show. So we talked about – the Disappearing Spoon, which was the book about the periodic table of the elements. Yep. Violinist Thumb, DNA, and kind of the history of DNA. I don't know the title of the brain. And It's called The Dueling Neurosurgeons. The Dueling Neurosurgeons. Yep. And then the most recent one was Caesar's Last Breath, which we talked about off the top. I'm wondering what areas in science haven't you written about yet, or maybe at least maybe you have but not extensively, that you're really looking to kind of dive into next? Well, actually, I was a physics major in college, and none of my books have really been focused (laughs) on physics. So it has been a case of trying to find that story where I feel like it's compelling enough to actually, um, yeah, to kind of draw people in and get them excited about the topic. And I think, actually, I have a new book coming out roughly a year from now, so July 2019, that I do actually uh, get into physics. So the premise of that book is a little different than my other ones. Um, so during World War II, the Manhattan Project, the a lot of the scientists working on the atomic bomb in the U.S. were refugees from Nazi Germany. They'd basically been run out of there by Hitler. But they were still convinced that the Nazis had the best scientists in the world, had the best industry in the world, and that they were going to make an atomic bomb, hand it to Hitler, and he was going to destroy the rest of the world with it. And they thought they, the Germans were far ahead of us and they were very worried about this. So they convinced some people on the Manhattan Project, some of the administrators, to send in this group of basically like scientific commandos into Europe undercover to spy on the Nazi atomic bomb project, to sabotage it, to assassinate some of the key members. So the book is about this sort of misfit group of scientific mm-hmm. commandos running around trying to stop the Nazi atomic bomb project in Europe. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit of a departure in that my other books, the chapters aren't totally independent, but they do kind of focus on different yeah. stories moving from chapter to chapter. Whereas this book is more like one overarching story. And there were some really fascinating characters in there. There were people who you know grew up in Russia and were fighting during the Russian Revolution who came over to the U.S. Mm-hmm. to help out. One of the Kennedy brothers, Joseph, who died during uh, World War II, was peripherally involved in the project. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's an ex-Major League Baseball player named Mo Berg who went to Princeton, spoke a dozen languages, turned into a spy later in his life. He was involved in the project. Yeah. So some great science, a great story overall, and some really great characters in there, too. That's awesome. Yeah. People can find all your books at samkeen.com, yep. correct? Samkeen, K-E-A-N.com. Last question, and I'm asking you this knowing that I know you're on campus here speaking to a group of um, educators, people who teach chemistry, and I don't know if there's other subjects that they teach, but high school, college professors, and I'm not asking you in the sense of, I know you're not going and presuming to tell them how to teach, how to do that, but from your experiences with science and your passion for science and your experience bringing it to a broader audience, what would you say to people who are teaching younger people science how do you how do you go about making it accessible or exciting what lessons you've learned from the work that you've done yeah i've actually had a lot of teachers who've used it in classrooms mm-hmm. um and they use it in a couple of different ways the most common way is just to grab students attention so you just give them a little anecdote to get mm-hmm. them excited or interested you show them that you know in the in the periodic table book i have chapters about periodic table poisons, about wars, about politics, about Mm -hmm. medicine, just different areas of life that intersect with the periodic table to show people it's not just like a chart hanging on the wall, completely isolated from the rest of your life. It has a lot to say about your life. So I think doing that can get people excited. And I also think you can actually learn more science than you might expect just by hearing stories because that's the way the human brain works. We're very, very good about remembering stories. If you give us like, you know, a table of data or a bunch of dates or something, we're really bad with that information. We just cannot process it. But if it's a story with characters and conflict and all that stuff, our brains just glom onto that and we really get it quite well. Mm-hmm. So if you can make a scientific topic a story about a researcher or a story about something else, People will remember the science because it's enmeshed in the mm-hmm. matrix of the story. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I think that. I mean, I think it's a great thing, and I think you're right. I, I know my own brain certainly works that way better when I can put something in context of a story that I've I've heard. It definitely it sticks around a lot longer. It does. Yeah. yeah. Sam Keen, thank you very much for making time for the show. Well, thanks for having yeah. me. With a side of knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. For more visit provost.nd.edu slash podcast.